the battle for genuine faith has been raging since the time of the fall. Perhaps the first clear battle was seen in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both had the goal of pleasing God with their sacrifices. Abel brought his sacrifice according to God's prescription and with a proper heart, Cain did not. And throughout time, organized religions have sprung up all over the globe with their leaders claiming to bring a person into a right standing with God. And so the battle for genuine faith continues. And even with the coming of our Savior, we would expect everyone to see that Jesus is the leader of genuine faith, the one to whom we must look. But despite His coming and His clear self-revelation that He is from the Father, even His own race of people, the Jews, rejected Him. And they embraced their own pursuit of godliness. And so, throughout the New Testament, and up until today, the story of this battle continues on. The battle for genuine faith. People are just seeking to please God. Many of them do it according to their own means. Many of them are seeking to please other gods. Our job is not necessarily to exegete the culture and try to figure out what everyone believes, but our job is to know what is true and to live according to that truth. And the way that we can know that our faith is real and that our form of godliness is from God is how? We search the Scriptures and find out what God has said. We don't try to examine, again, we don't go to the bookshelves, find all the world religions, and let's compare and try to see which one makes most sense rationally. We search God's Word, we search the Scriptures, and find out what God expects of us. And so, Paul wants Timothy to recognize that there are, in his church there in Ephesus, claims for genuine godliness that are not real. And that means that Timothy, that Timothy's job and my job must be to learn and understand sound doctrine and to teach it and also to live a biblical form of godliness and to to teach that as well. So let's look at our text tonight beginning in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy verse 1. This is the word of God. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness... He is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Here are a couple ways that genuine faith is expressed. One is in how you treat your boss, and, and the second is in how you think about godliness. So the outworking of your faith is evidenced in how you treat your boss, and it's evidenced in how you think about godliness. So Paul, very simply, is continuing on with a theme of honoring those to whom honor is due. We have seen that um, that the church must honor widows in chapter 5, and then at the end of chapter 5, the church must honor their pastor. And then at the beginning of chapter 6 now, we see that the, the employees or slaves must honor their masters. And that's where he turns. He's kind of keeping with a similar theme. And so the first thing that we see tonight in verses 1 and 2 is that we should not dishonor our boss. Don't dishonor your boss, verses 1 and 2. There's a command here for all workers in verse 1. The focus is on slaves. Notice that these are slaves who are under the yoke of their master. So even with that language, you hear this responsibility of this weight that these slaves bear to take care of their master's needs. And the command there at the beginning of verse 1 is to regard their master as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So, how do we honor masters? Paul says, treat them with full respect. Treat them as worthy of full honor. Think about how honor is displayed in chapter 5. We honor widows by providing for them financially when they're in a time of need. We doubly honor pastors by providing for them financially and by giving them respect, respect, especially when it comes to the area of sin, treating them fairly when it comes to their sin. In other words, not skirting the issue and also not, um, uh, not unfairly bringing the sin before the church. And so, so if that's the way we honor widows, by helping take care of their finances, and we honor pastors by helping take care of their finances and by showing them respect, how is it that we honor masters? Well, certainly it can't be by helping take care of their finances, right? We don't pay our our masters to work for us, our bosses to work for us, although there is a sense in which we actually are making money for our boss, otherwise it doesn't make sense for them to hire us, right? So, um, but the idea here is the, of the honor has to do with giving them respect, and that seems to be Paul's point, as we'll see in verse 2, that, that we need to do a good job. So no matter what kind of boss you have, believing or unbelieving, you need to give him full honor, which means doing a good job whether he's looking or not. And the reason for this command is found in the second part of verse 1, that failing to honor your master invites reproach from the enemy. Failing to honor your master invites reproach from the enemy. To put it another way, the the spread of God's fame depends on the treatment of your boss. Think about that. The spread of the gospel and, and the worth of God is in some measure dependent on how you treat your boss, whether he's watching or not. Notice at the end of verse 1, so that, why do we treat them with all honor? The text says, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. There are two results of maligning our boss or mistreating our boss. Um, Not showing them honor. Not doing a good job. One is that God's name is maligned, right? So that the name of God will not be spoken against. And the second is that God's teaching or, or doctrine is not 
is maligned. So one of the motivations for you to be a good worker, whether you have a believing or unbelieving master, is that your work in some way represents the name and the doctrine of God. Now, we, we don't often think those large thoughts when we go to work. We're thinking, you know, my little task, my little cubicle, my little job, hopefully my big paycheck, right? But we're not thinking the big picture that this actually has an effect on the, on the universal scope of how God is, is seen by this world. Paul had said in chapter 5 that young widows should get remarried so that they don't become busybodies and bring a bad name on the church. That, that there in chapter 5, verse 14, we don't want to give the enemy any reason for reproach. And it seems to me that the enemy is probably some cynics or skeptics outside the church who are like, you know, what's the big deal about Christianity? Why follow God? Or why go to this church? I mean, these people are a bunch of busybodies and gossips and... I mean, what, what good does that do for anybody? A bunch of miserable wrecks. Why would I want to ever be a part of that? And it actually maligns the name of the church, which is a representation of Christ, so in that way it, it maligns the name of Christ. So Paul says, you widows, you younger ones, get married. Get remarried. Stop, don't have all that time to become busybodies and gossips and, and temptation as well. Instead, get yourself busy by getting remarried. And the same idea is true here. We, we have a reputation to protect, and it's not our own. It's the reputation of God. That in some way, we represent God. We are His representatives, His hands and feet to the watching world because we claim the name of God for ourselves. Not that we are gods, but, but that we follow this God. And so if we work or are lazy, if we work terribly or we're lazy, what do we say about our God that we follow? That's why Paul says in another passage that we should work heartily as unto the Lord. That's the one you serve. And so when you serve your master, your employer, think big thoughts. Recognize the great weight of responsibility that you have. In verse 2, we see a prohibition against... Uh, a prohibition regarding workers with believing masters. So now he turns from just every single worker who has a master now to those who have believing masters because the temptation is apparently that those of us who have believing masters will take advantage of them. Notice verse 2. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. So why would Paul make this kind of command? The answer is because apparently by, by nature the temptation is for us to mistreat or disrespect our believing boss. It's to dishonor our master. And so if you have a believing master, you actually have an added temptation to disrespect him. Why? Well, um, apparently we take advantage of believing bosses that, you know, after all, they're a Christian too. And so... I don't really have to worry about my testimony. I, I don't have a reputation to uphold. He already knows I'm a Christian. He's a Christian, so... Maybe we take the doctrine of Christian equality to an extreme. And that's why we have this temptation. Right? Galatians 3.28, There is neither slave nor free. So in that sense, I have equality with my Master in Christ. 
Now, is that true? Absolutely. We, have, we are the same value before God. There's no, you know, he's ahead of me because he's a, he's a boss and I'm not. No, we're on the same plane when it comes to our standing before God. And so that is true. And so as a result, we might take that doctrine too far and say, you know what? You are in, have the same value as me before God. Therefore, you need to treat me however I want to be treated. You have to be good to me. I'm a Christian. You have to show me grace. When I mess up, you have to show me grace. I know because you're a Christian. Paul says, don't do that. Instead, what should we do? Notice the second part of verse 2. But we must serve them all the more. In other words, we need to work even harder for believing masters. Our equality and value... Right, we're on the same plane with believing masters, is not grounds for function, functional equality. That doesn't mean that, 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 that we can just do whatever we want. We can kind of give the orders or whatever the case. Switch roles. We're all on the same plane. You can't tell me what to do. Instead, we need to recognize that there is still functional inequality. That's okay. That's part of the created order. Right? There is functional inequality. Okay, think about that for a second. Don't don't fall off into the into heterodoxy here. Functional inequality in the Godhead. That is that God the Father never submits to God the Son. God the Son never submits to, the, to God the Spirit. There is an, a functional inequality there, but there is an equality in essence, isn't there? Equality in value. They're all God. Each of them are God. And yet there's functional inequality. Same thing as happens within the the marriage relationship, the same thing happens in the family, the same thing happens in the government, and the same thing happens in work. There's still value there between your Christian boss and you. Equality and value, but there's difference in function, and so we need to recognize that and honor that by working even harder for them than we would an average boss, an unbelieving boss. It's true that slaves are free in Christ. Okay, We are on the same plane in value. But at the same time, Paul says in Galatians 5.13 that we must never use our freedom as a means to indulge in sin, but rather we should serve one another in love. Notice the reason why at the end of verse 2. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. In other words, the reason that we... had a little storm over here. Um, the reason that we... We work for our master all the more is because it's wrong to take advantage of their graciousness. It's wrong to take advantage of their graciousness. Mistreatment of your boss is a terrible sin because they are fellow believers. We should not take advantage of their grace. It's, it's like the child who says, you know what, my, my parents are the most forgiving people I've ever met, and so I'm going to just do whatever I want and then ask for forgiveness later. Or it's like the, the Christian who says, you know what? God is so gracious and He constantly forgives. And I know that He's slow to anger and abounding in love, so I'm just going to go on and sin so that grace can abound. Right? And, and we should never have that thought with God. We should never have that thought with our parents. And we should never have that thought with our boss because they are one of our brothers. We should not take advantage of their graciousness. So, one of the expressions of our faith of genuine faith is evidenced in how we treat our boss. Secondly, it's in how we understand 
godliness. So don't dishonor your boss. And then secondly, don't misunderstand the purpose of godliness. Verses 3 through 10. Don't misunderstand the purpose of godliness. Here Paul begins by saying that true godliness is not a way to exploit people for money. It's not a way to exploit people for money. The standard for true godliness is seen in verse 3. True godliness is consistent with the doctrine of Christ. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited. And he goes on to talk about them. So he's saying that there are some who advocate, notice this phrase here in verse 3, a different doctrine. This phrase comes from one Greek word that's translated in other places as strange doctrine, like in chapter 1, verse 3. Or false teaching, that's what he's saying. So if anyone advocates a false teaching, a strange doctrine, then they have embraced a form of godliness that is inconsistent with the doctrine of Christ. That's why he explains it there in the second line. And does not agree with sound words or sound doctrine, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christ's doctrine is sound, it's true, it's right. Something that we can hold on to. But then there's this different, this false doctrine that that is being promoted and it actually promotes a certain kind of godliness that is deceiving. And apparently these false teachers in Timothy's church were actually adopting asceticism, which is a method of self-denial as a way to appear to be righteous or as a way to earn God's favor. Right? If I do away with these days and I do away with these kinds of foods, then, then I have to be spiritual. And God says through the Apostle Paul, no, not, that's not true. Why give up things that God has rightly called good? Um, instead, you need to enjoy those things to the glory of God, recognizing their purpose and their place, proper timing of them, but, but use them um, as part of God's good blessing on the earth. So the standard of true godliness is, is whether it's consistent with the doctrine of Christ. The way that we know whether our faith is true or genuine is by its fruit. False doctrine, we're going to see, leads to feigned godliness, and sound doctrine leads to true godliness. Okay, so there's this form of godliness. He's going to say that there is this idea that people are trying to use godliness as a means to gain financial gain. But real godliness, true godliness, is actually content with the way that it is. It's content with what God has provided. So in verse 4, we see the picture of feigned godliness. What does this false expression of faith look like? This, this different doctrine, this false doctrine. Well, it's expressed in its fruit. How do we know what false, doc, false doctrine looks like? Well, look at its fruit. Its fruit is artificial godliness. In verse 4, he says, um, anyone who does not agree with the sound word in the middle of verse 3, anyone who advocates this different doctrine, then, verse 4, he is conceited and he understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, of which arise envy, strife, abusive, abusive language, evil suspicions. So the picture of feigned godliness, false godliness, is seen in a person who is arrogant and ignorant. Like in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that these men, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't even know what they're talking about. It's an artificial form of godliness. It looks to be spiritual, but it's actually a person who is unteachable. He loves to major on the minors. He loves to ignore the context. 
He loves to ignore sound biblical reason. He is arrogant and ignorant of the truth. He's like a pig who wallows in the mud of self-deception. And he loves every minute of it. And he has no intention of being dissuaded, um, even if there is clear biblical warrant for, um, for him turning away from his false doctrine. And so you know false doctrine by its fruit. It, it shows off this ugliness and this division that he talks about at the end of verse 4, right? Envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. Envy, Philip Towner uh, describes these various words here at the end of verse 4. He says, envy is an incessant craving for something possessed by someone else. Strife, pretty obvious what that is, chaotic dissension. Abusive language is slander, verbal attacks that come along with heresy. And then evil suspicions is kind of like this crooked eye. I can't trust anyone because there's a constant battle for position and I need to make sure that I have first place. People are looking to me. In other words, we can know a person's false doctrine, their feigned godliness by their fruit. A bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. So look at the fruit. You'll know what kind of tree you have. The result of this kind of thinking and this kind of living is eternally destruction, eternally destructive. This is not something that we can kind of just brush off and say, well, you know what, he just misunderstood. Um, We need to recognize that that feigned godliness has its root in false doctrine which is opposed to the doctrine of Christ and its destination is eternal death. I am, I guess I didn't have sub-points there for you. Sorry about that. So we're still in verse 5 here. The destination of feigned godliness is is defection from the faith or eternal destruction. Here's the result of a person who goes on with this. Okay, It's rooted in this false doctrine. It bears forth in this false or pious, false piety that's going on. right? And the result of it is eventually that tree, if we want to use that tree imagery, that tree is going to be destroyed. Eternal destruction. Defection from the faith. Here's why I know that. Verse 5. The other fruit that comes is a constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So they have this constant friction. There's the, the source of this twisted thinking comes from their depraved mind. Their blindness to the light. Right? They are deprived of the truth. They don't understand what is true. The, the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to them. Right? First Corinthians uh, chapter 1 says... They see the wisdom of the word as foolishness. They see godliness not as a means to, to, have, to, to um, express their right relationship with God, to be pleasing to God, but they see godliness, notice at the end of verse 5, as a, we, as a way to exploit people for money. Right? Godliness is a means of gain. And I think the idea there in, in the context is material gain. They're happy to put on all these externals in order to show people that they have this form of godliness, if it will bring them money. Do you know any, any movements like this today? And the first one that comes to mind, obviously, is the prosperity gospel that, that is um, just a big show in order to gain as much money as possible. And in reality, what they've done is they've actually missed the boat on what godliness is all about. They seemed to look really spiritual, but these men and women with their artificial faith and their form of, forms of godliness are really just in it for the money. So 
true godliness is not a way to exploit people, people for money. We, un, we need to understand what true godliness is for. True godliness, in verses 6 through 8, is rooted in an eternal perspective that is coupled with contentment. True godliness is rooted in an eternal perspective that is coupled with contentment. So Paul says, in contrast to this feigned godliness that's really all about money, here's what true godliness does. It's actually rooted in an eternal perspective and is happily content with what it has. See, godliness is not designed as a way to make money. Verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain, but here we're not talking about financial gain. Instead, we're talking about eternal gain, aren't we? Genuine godliness has an eternal perspective, eternal perspective. Verse 7, for we have brought nothing into this world, and so we cannot take anything out of it. If this world all is all that there is, if, if this life is all we have, the next life is not to come, and there is no God, then by all means we should pursue money and the pleasures that come from this from money. But if this world is only a precursor to our eternity, then we better live in view of eternity because we did not bring anything into this world and we're not carrying anything out. Have you ever heard the story about the doctor who, who um, was delivering a baby, newborn baby, and in the fist of the baby, he opened up his hand and in it was a gold nugget. You ever heard that story? Or, or, the, or the one where the baby was holding a roll of $100 bills? You haven't heard that? Neither have I. Because that doesn't happen. I mean, as silly as, as it is to consider a baby coming into the world with some money, that's as silly as it, as it is to think of a corpse taking money with him, clutching on to all of his resources, having his casket full of all the money that he had accumulated throughout life. It's not going to happen. Because he brought nothing with him and he can't take anything with him when he dies. Job said that he came with nothing when he was born and he will leave with nothing when he dies. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1.21 Everyone and everything is passing away. And we have to keep that in view, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.15. We need to recognize that everything's passing away. All these things are temporal nature, and so money in itself is not evil, but if, if that's all we're living for, we've missed the point of what life is. And genuine godliness is not a way for us to get more money. To put ourselves in a position where people like us. It's not a way for us to earn favor with God so that God sends more blessing. That's the prosperity gospel, right? If you just believe, if you just live rightly, then God's going to bless you. Look at me, right? The, the prosperity preacher says. Look at me and all the wealth that I've accumulated. You know why? Because I'm living in the higher life. I'm living the spiritual life. I believe. Because of that, God's pouring down His blessing on me with a lot of money. That kind of message doesn't square with the rest of the Scripture, does it? It doesn't square with a man like Job who was a genuine believer. It doesn't square with a man like Paul who said, you know, I went several times without food. It doesn't square with a person like Jesus who died with practically nothing to His name. Materially. 
It's not about the money. Godliness is not a way to force God to give us what we want. But godliness is a way, genuine godliness is a way that we can have great eternal gain when it's coupled with contentment. Look back at the end of verse 6, or just look at the whole thing. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And then here's what contentment looks like in verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Instead of this attitude of, you know what, I don't quite have as much as this guy. I mean, how fair is that? This guy's an unbeliever. He hates God. He doesn't go to church on Sunday. And I have less than him. In fact, if I was like him, I would work on Sundays. And I would have more money. For some reason, he has more than I do. It's not, it doesn't seem to be fair. But that's because we are looking at things with the wrong perspective. We're looking at things from a worldly perspective as if money is all there is that matters. And what we need to see is instead of being greedy for more, we are content with the basics that we have. That is, thankful to God for the very basic things that He has given to us. Now, I don't think Paul is calling for us to become impoverished and to get down to the bare necessities and live in a tent or something. I think the Scriptures are clear that there's nothing inherently evil about being wealthy. In verse 17... He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So there's actually a reality, a possibility. You could have someone who's rich in the church. That's fine. Make sure his focus is in the right place. There seems to be some examples of that in in the book of Acts as well with some wealthy believers who actually helped um, contribute to the church in a way that would supply their needs and supply for those who were lacking. So it's not, it doesn't matter how much money you have. That's not the point. The point is, are you content with what you have? Is there a happy contentment in your heart because God has given you even the simple life? So true godliness is not a way to exploit people for money. It's not a way to exploit God for money. Secondly, true godliness is rooted in an, in an eternal perspective. And then finally in verses 9-10, through 10, true godliness avoids the trap of acquiring wealth. Maybe a better way to put that is desiring wealth. True godliness avoids the trap of acquiring or desiring wealth, verses 9 and 10. The dangers of pursuing wealth are seen in verse 9. But those who want to get rich, there's the idea of desire. So it's all about our desire. Those who want to get rich, what happens to them? They fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So, we're back to the artificial godliness. The feigned godliness has at its core not a desire to please God, but a desire to acquire more wealth. And so, in this desire, if we make our primary desire in life to pursue more wealth, we're going to pursue wealth at all costs. What does Paul tell us? Tells us. What does Paul tell us will happen to us? We will, verse 9, fall into temptation and to a snare, a trap. Temptation, with regard to money, is successful when it appeals to us and wins our desires. But that temptation is actually a snare. It's a trap. It entangles us into 
what we thought was harmless. Isn't that the nature of a trap, right? That we set up for an animal? It seems to be harmless. It's all covered over and it just looks like a very nice place to set my foot. Or here's a little bite to eat that I can get. I just need to grab it. It turns out to be a trap and it catches us. Paul's saying, you know what the little bait is? It's that desire for wealth. I just have a little, if I can have a little bit more, that's going to be mine. Paul says, those who pursue after that, they make that their primary goal in life. They set aside all of their morals and their proper godly desires because they're going after that one little piece of meat. And as a result, they are entrapped. This is one of the greatest tools in the hand of Satan. The lure for more money. Notice the results of those who live to acquire this wealth. This is serious business. They fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. They are drowned in the lake of eternal destruction. The reason I say drowned is because of that word plunge there at the end of verse 9. Which plunge, men, that word plunge has the idea of forcing someone underwater. It's as if we've... Uh, what's the present perfect, present past? Uh, never mind. And it's like we dove into the, 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 the water in order to get something, some treasure. And in the process, we have been swept under by the current. We have been plunged in to eternal destruction. They long to get rich because they have a love for more money. They have a love for money. It gives us something, doesn't it? It, it provides for us a security that we otherwise feel we can't have. So if I just can get more money, then it will be enough. Paul says, don't do that. Those who long to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which end up plunging a person, drowning them into destruction. So in verse 10, there's a proverb that we must embrace. The proverb is at the beginning of verse 10, for the love of money is the root, is a root of all sorts of evil. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Notice, it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. Okay, there's nothing inherently evil about money. So I've heard people say that before. You know, money's just terrible. I'm trying to get rid of as much as I can. I'm just using the bare, very minimal. No, actually, money is a tool that we can use for much good. But here, Paul's saying, and uh, this is the Word of God, so this is the Holy Spirit by inspiration is telling us the love of money is, the, is a root of all kinds of evil. So a number of, majority of the evils that we do are because we have this love for money. And the kinds of evil that come from this love of money are seen at the end of the verse. So we have a proverb to be embraced and then finally the result of the proverb when it's ignored. The result of ignoring the proverb. And some, by longing for this money, have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
So again, the warning is very strong, isn't it? Those who ignore this proverb will be spiritually destroyed. Right? They wander away from the faith. They defect. They defect from the faith, don't they? They experience the consequences of their sin. And so the love of money is not something we just write off as a white sin of some kind or some kind of, you know, it's a guilty pleasure. I love it and just have to have it. The love of money is actually a catalyst for our eternal destruction. Because in exchange for God, in exchange for worshiping God, we worship at the altar of money, and in doing so, we have worshiped and served created things. That money, or what that money can buy, we've worshiped and served at the altar of those created things rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Romans 1. And the Bible is clear that if we head down that path, and we take that bait, we will get what we desire. We will get what we desire. It will lead us to turn away from God and to to seek the pleasure of this world all the more. And sometimes God in His judgment doesn't come and beat us over the head and stop us from our pursuit of sin. Sometimes God in His judgment does what? He lets us have exactly what we want. He gives us over to the depravity of our minds so that we can enjoy all the sins that we think we will enjoy. Only to turn our backs on God. So, the outworking of your faith is evidence in how you treat your boss and how you think about godliness. So, a couple of points of application that go along with this. How you think about your boss matters. How you think about your boss is a serious matter because how you think about your boss will determine how you treat your boss when he's watching and when he's not watching. And, and the reality is, is that it is rare to have co-workers who love their boss and who are sitting next to you encouraging you to speak nice things about your boss. By nature, workers complain about their labor. They complain about their pay. They complain about the way that they're treated. And that's what your co-workers are going to encourage you to do. But the Scriptures tell you that you must honor your boss, particularly if you have a believing one. We live in an age of entitlement where the majority of people think that having a job is a right rather than a privilege. People think that they could run the company better than their boss, and that may be true. But no matter, no matter what, no matter who your boss is, no matter how terrible he does his job, he is worthy of your respect. Isn't that what the Scripture says? And if you claim to be a child of God and you can't speak nice things about your boss in public or in private then the Scripture says that your thinking is way off base and that you're actually misrepresenting the name of your God. For those of you with believing bosses, you need to especially guard against your sense of entitlement because the temptation is to take advantage of His graciousness. You know, He has to be nice to me. He has to forgive me when I fail. He has to keep giving me a job. He can't send me out to the street. He can't fire me. I'm going to just work however I please or, or not work as much as I want. How you think about your boss matters. And then how you think about godliness matters. If you think that godliness is a way to, to get money from people or from God, if you think that godliness is a way to get people to put you into a position of power, you know, if I can just appear godly, 
people will put me in the place of power and you have it all wrong. We often treat godliness as if it's a token that we put into the vending machine and out comes what we want from God. If I am just godly, then God has to give me money, fame, notoriety. When we are hoping that our form of godliness actually brings some kind of temporal advantage, we actually show our discontentment, right? We show that we're not happy with where we are right now, with our money and our position and our, and our power. Show our poor theology. That's not the purpose of godliness. That kind of mentality flows from a strange doctrine, a false doctrine, a doctrine that's not in accord with the doctrine of Christ. And that's why there is all this envy, strife, abusive language, dissensions, evil suspicions. Because people are, are going at it like the world is going at it. Right? They're, they're constantly fighting to see who can get on top. That should not be the case with us as Christians. And the result is disastrous. Notice again verse 9. Which plunge, the end of the verse, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then verse 10. At the end it says have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The result of this kind of pursuit of using godliness as a means to get some kind of temporal pleasure, particularly money, results in ruin, destruction, defection from the faith, and many griefs. But godliness, genuine godliness, that's coupled with contentment is presently and eternally rich and beneficial so that godliness becomes a kind of end in itself. That, that it's not a means for us to get something temporal, but it actually flows out of a proper doctrine, a proper perspective on eternal things. That our pursuit of godliness is not for me primarily. It's for God. It's for God and His name to be known. The only way to get on this path towards genuine godliness is by putting Christ at the center of our lives. So that no matter what we have or what is taken away from us, we are content because Christ is enough. Christ is all that I need. I don't need anything else. Is Christ enough for you tonight? Or do you have to add something to Him to make yourself happy? Are you happy in Christ? That's where true godliness Focuses. It has its attention focused on Christ and the pleasures that come from obeying Him and trusting in Him. Let's pray. Father, it's a difficult thing to consider our own motives for why we pursue godliness, why we obey You, because there is a feigned kind of obedience that seeks the approval of people like what Jesus warned against in Matthew 6 where many people came to pray so that they could be seen by others. And what Jesus is looking for is a genuine love for you and a genuine faith that comes from the heart. It's not about being seen. It's not about being seen in our giving like like the, um, the religious leaders, but it's more like the widow who just silently gave all that she had and Lord, we need to be content with what we have. And how timely is this message for us in an age when we are some of the richest people in the world and yet we still are not content. We need a little bit more. 
And Lord, it's hard for us to see our own hearts. And so use your word to be a mirror for us so that we can see the wickedness of our hearts in our pursuit of money. May we see the proper value in serving you and the proper purpose of money to to produce good and to use it to help store up for ourselves treasures in heaven as we use it to advance the mission of Christ to make his name known in this church and in this area and around the world. Would you strengthen us in this task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.